Boss is here. Military parents never miss a beat, and neither does the Johns Hopkins U.S. Family Health Plan. Built for every warrior in your family. With more than 40 years of service to military families, TRICARE Prime Benefits plus exclusive extras. Learn more at warriorsathome.com. Welcome into The Verge, a show which covers the Baltimore Orioles minor leagues. The Verge is part of BSL Radio. Baltimore Sports and Life is dedicated to analysis and discussion on the Orioles, Baltimore Ravens, and the University of Maryland. The site has a team of writers providing coverage of those teams and houses live streaming content weekly. Join the conversations at the message board, like BSL on Facebook, and follow BSL on Twitter. On Twitter. Want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily, then distribute it everywhere and even earn money all in one place for free. It's called Spotify for Podcasters, and here's how it works. Spotify for Podcasters lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer, so no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. Ever since we discovered Spotify for Podcasters, we feel like having options like video podcasts and Q&A lets us be more creative on another level. I highly recommend you give it a try. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com slash podcasters to get started. Welcome to the latest on the Verge Major League Mailbag. This is Zach Spedden here this week to take questions about all things Orioles, including some Major League questions as well as some prospect talk. A little bit of trade deadline and some random asides from uh, members of our Patreon community. And I'm going to start with this question from Tony, who wants to know, who leads the team in wins in the second half? I'll go ahead and go with the hot hand right now and pick Kyle Bradis. Bradis, over his last five starts, has been excellent. And it's unfortunate because he has not had a lot of run support in that time. So he's only gone three and two in that span. But 174 ERA, 28 strikeouts. To seven walks over 31 innings pits with a 3-6-1 FIP. Really, if you go back to June 8th, that start at Milwaukee where the Orioles ended up winning, but Bradis was given a no decision. Five innings, three runs, 10 strikeouts, one walk. He had a rough first inning in that game, but was effective after that. He has been really, you could argue, the Orioles' best starter since that point. So I'll go ahead and say that Bradis has a little bit better luck uh, in terms of run support than what he's had lately continues to pitch well in the second half and ends up collecting the most wins on the team in that time period. we got another rotation question here from Vivek, who wants to know, how do you manage a situation where Cole Irving deservingly stays in the rotation and Grayson Rodriguez is deservingly knocking on the door again? And that's a good question because Irving is making a stronger case right now for sticking in the rotation for the rest of the year. After going down to Norfolk to work on his command, he's come back up and has settled in. He's generally been a quality pitcher for the Orioles, and I think close to the pitcher that the Orioles thought they were getting when they made that trade last year. So if he's able to keep that up, I do think that he sticks in the rotation. But for, as for how the Orioles handle Rodriguez, that will be interesting. I definitely don't think we've seen the last of Rodriguez this year, but we also know at the same time that the Orioles are probably going to want to carefully monitor his innings. So that might mean that Grayson piggybacks in some periods. Maybe you skip turns in the rotation when he does come back up and then you know with Irvin and the rest of the rotation there may be someone who pitches out of the bullpen on nights where Grayson starts we'll see but 
I don't think Urban's going to keep Rodriguez down if Rodriguez goes to Norfolk and does what he needs to do. And so far that he has done that, throw strikes, uh, work on his secondaries, really develop that out pitch that he couldn't find at the major leagues. He'll get back there this year, and the Orioles won't be hesitant to use him, but I think we also got to be mindful of the fact that he is coming off of a season in 2022 where he missed a substantial period of time with an injury. We thought coming into this year the Orioles were going to manage his innings, and I still think that's the case. So there's going to be ways that the Orioles can work around that where they can have Rodriguez up but still let Urban take the ball every five days if he's able to do what he's been doing lately, which is throwing strikes and keeping the Orioles in games. Along those same lines, Brandon Stoneberg wants to know, what is the best-case scenario for D.L. Hall, Drew Rahm, and Grayson Rodriguez for the rest of this season? For Rodriguez, it's just what I touched on, which is working out the things that he was struggling with at the major league level in AAA, coming back and really pitching a lot better when he does get there, getting the opportunity to start. That is the best-case scenario for him. As for Rahm and Hall, I think they're in different situations, but they're in some ways similar. Rahm, I think the best-case scenario for him is to get some looks in the major leagues late this year and put himself in the conversation for a roster spot in 2024, whether that's in the starting rotation or possibly out of the bullpen as a long man. Um, you know, Rahm has had some ups and downs at AAA this year, but still kind of the pitcher we've known all along that he can be, which is a guy that throws strikes, gets a lot of ground balls, and when he's on is going to work efficiently. As for Hall, it's really a question of how he's going to build himself back up and get the velocity up again. I suspect that the best case scenario for him for the rest of this year is that he gets the major leagues late in the year out of the bullpen. I think that that's probably the best thing for him and probably the best thing for the Orioles because the Orioles might need the bullpen help. Hall you know, didn't really get the opportunity to build himself up fully this year because he had the injury that kept him out of spring training for a while. And when he does come back, I don't know that you're going to try to have him work out of the rotation again. So my guess for him is the best case scenario is we see him out of the bullpen later in this year. And much like Rom, he works his way into the conversation for a roster spot in 2024 whether that's out of the bullpen or in the rotation. I'm starting to become more convinced that it's going to be out of the bullpen, but we also don't know that the Orioles have fully given up on the idea of him being a starter. we got a lot of questions about Ryan Mountcastle this week, so we'll address those now. Brandon wants to know, is Ryan O'Hearn the reason Mountie is still in AAA? And follow up, if O'Hearn keeps this up, what do we do with Mountie? Bob Phil and my co-host also asked, what do the Orioles do with Mountcastle following the All-Star break? Who goes from the active roster, or do they obstinate him? Malcastle has been out since June with an injury. He's down in Norfolk rehabbing right now, and his numbers after a couple of weeks in Norfolk are not that good. Uh, he's been hitting about, I think he's hitting 222 right now in his time with the Tides. He had 222 over 54 at bats in the last couple of weeks with Norfolk. O'Hearn, meanwhile, is putting together a very good season, albeit in sort of a platoon role. He's only had nine plate appearances against left-handed pitching this year and has gone one for eight with a walk and two strikeouts. So the Orioles have a clearly defined role for O'Hearn, and I don't see them changing that. He's hitting well enough to stay on the active roster. So I don't see Mountcastle affecting that. What it probably means is that when Mountcastle does come back, the Orioles are going to you know mix and match, and they've shown that they can do this before. So 
That might mean that there are knights where one plays first base and the other plays d8, and that's between Mountcastle and O'Hearn. It might be that Mountcastle sits more often against right-handed pitching so that the Orioles can put O'Hearn in there. Uh, there. There's a lot of options that you can go with to figure that out. As for who goes from the active roster, that's not quite an easy question to answer because I don't know who you would necessarily pull down. I don't see Jordan Westberg or Colton Calder going anywhere. The infield situation is fairly set, so it's hard to predict who they're going to pull from the active roster, but I do think that they're going to find a way from Mountcastle to get back in there, but then keep O'Hearn around. David Adams also wants to know who returns first, Mountcastle to the Orioles or Bob to the podcast. I'll go with Bob to the podcast because the Orioles are coming up on the All-Star break, so Mountcastle might not be back until late next week, the earliest, whereas Bob is on track right now to come back early this week for our show, so I'll go with Bob. Kevin Brown wants to know, could you beat Joey Chestnut in a hot dog eating contest? And this prompted a uh, back and forth in our Patreon chat that led to more questions about hot dog eating contests. Colin wanted to amend the question to know if the three co-hosts of On the Verge, myself, Bob Phelan, and Nick Stevens, combined hot dog count could beat Joey Chestnut. And Tony wants to know which Oriole could beat Joey Chestnut. So to answer Kevin's question first, no, I absolutely would not be able to beat Joey Chestnut. I don't think the three of us combined would beat him, though I feel like Bob would be pretty game and want to put up a good fight. And then as for Tony's question, if we're going all time, I would go David Wells. I think he might have a decent shot against Joey Chestnut in a hot dog eating contest. I don't really see anyone on the active roster being able to go toe-to-toe with Joey Chestnut. Maybe I'm not quite in tune to the hot dog eating capabilities of this team, but I don't see anyone beating Joey Chestnut off the current roster. All time, there are a few good options. Someone in the Patreon chat mentioned Sidney Ponson, which is a good choice. I'll take David Wells, though. We'll go with a fun question here from Matt, who wants to know how I would build the perfect ballpark with existing ballparks. For example, his choice was Camden Yards right field with the warehouse and the right field scoreboard, the green monster from Fenway Park in left field, the backdrop at Coors Field in center field, the home plate skyline views of Progressive Field in Cleveland, all the walls made out of ivy like at Wrigley Field, and then a slide in left field like Miller Park. I'll go ahead and I'll take your right field and left field, Candom Yards and Fenway Park. Center field, I will go with Petco Park. It's a nice backdrop there where you have the park behind the batter's eye. It kind of gives it a unique feel. And then for the home plate views, I will go with Pittsburgh. And then as for kind of the off-the-wall amenity, I want to build a ballpark that somehow reminds you of its team name in a more explicit way than Comerica Park does in Detroit. You walk along the outside of Comerica Park, and every two feet, there is either a tiger bust on the wall where there's a couple of tigers or a tiger around an entrance gate. You know, an actual replica tiger, not a real-life tiger. There's no way I would go there if they had a real-life tiger hanging around. Um, so what I would want to do, and this is a task for someone who's up for it, go around the exterior of Comerica Park, count how many times you see either a tiger at the gate like a tiger statue or a tiger bust on the wall count that up and then beat it by 10 so if i'm running the orioles let's say and i'm renovating candom yards and i have 200 tigers outside of comerica park 
I'm with 220 Orioles outside of Canton Yards by opening day 2024. Somehow make that happen. Maybe you go with the Mercedes-Benz Stadium style sculpture. They have the falcon of an Oriole flying around. And then a bunch of Orioles on the wall because the Tigers feel like they own this space with reminding you of their team's name everywhere you walk outside of their ballpark. But I'm just going to go for the task here and one-up them somehow. On some trade deadline-related questions, Tony wants to know how plausible is it the trade deadline will primarily be trading away to make room for prospects? And if that does happen, how insane will Orioles' Twitter slash threads slash blue sky slash whatever go? Orioles' social media is going to go insane no matter what happens. It could be that the Orioles go out and they buy. It could be that they take some approach like they did last year where they sell high on a few players that are playing well. It could be some combination of the two. Orioles' social media will still go nuts, and the thing they will go nuts about is something that has not happened, but that they're convinced will happen. They're already mad at Mike Elias for it. So you can count on Orioles' social media to contribute that. Now, as for how plausible it is that that's the focus of the trade deadline, I still see the Orioles in a more typical buying role. I don't know who they would sell at this point. But is it possible that maybe someone like Ramona Rios goes so they can make room for Joey Ortiz or not have to shuffle as many players in and out and get more at-bats guaranteed for guys like Jordan Westbrook? That's plausible, and I could see it happen. So I'd say like maybe... I don't know, 35-40% chance maybe that that's the approach the Orioles take or that it's at least part of the approach that the Orioles take at the deadline because they could try to do that and get something back to either help the Major League roster, whether that's a bullpen arm for someone like Arias or maybe a prospect that they feel like they can develop into you know a useful player within a year or two. So that is plausible. I don't know that it's going to be the main approach the Orioles take, but I wouldn't rule it out at all. And Justin Bach wants to know, which prospects does Baltimore, meaning the left field wall at Canham Yards, most impact the likelihood that they could be traded? Jordan Westberg would seem like the strongest choice because he is a right-handed hitter who relies on pulling the ball to generate his power. So seemingly his home run count would be affected the most by the left field wall. But so far, he's up in the big leagues playing pretty well, and he's flashing good glove work at second base when he's getting the opportunity. So the Orioles, I think, at this point would have to feel like they were getting something really strong back to move Westberg. It would have to be a top-of-the-arm rotation. It would have to be in the move for a guy like Dylan Cease or somebody like that for Westberg to go. So then after that, it could be Connor Norby or Joey Ortiz. I know that Norby and Ortiz both have a little bit better power the other way, where statistically they've been better in that area than Westberg has over the course of his career. Um, But it would probably be one of those guys, not just because they are right-handed hitters, but because they're in an area where the Orioles clearly have depth. Um, You could look at some other right-handed bats in the system. I don't think we know quite yet how it's going to affect Judd Fabian, but based on the home runs he's hit this year, he's not hit a lot of wall scrapers, so maybe it won't affect him that much. And Kobe Mayo is absolutely not going to be affected by it. That's a right-handed hitter that I can say with absolute confidence still projects as a 30-plus, 35-home run bat in a good season. The Canham Yards is not going to affect him at all because his power is just off the charts. Matt S. wants to know if there's any chance that the Orioles could cut Adam Frazier to make room for Joey Ortiz. Matt also points out that at this point in the year, the Orioles will only be eating half of Frazier's $8 million salary 
and that even if Joey Ortiz doesn't have immediate power potential in the bigs as Adam Frazier has, it could be a net gain given that Ortiz is such a good defender. And that is plausible that Ortiz could come up and add value with the glove even if the bat doesn't quite pick up right away. I still think the Orioles are going to hold on to Frazier. I think that he's doing for the most part what they expected him to do. And I know that the base numbers aren't, the raw stats aren't that great with Frazier, but he is hitting for power, playing okay defense, moving around a little bit. He's still a good guy to have in there against right-handed pitching sometimes. So they'll probably hold on to Frazier for the rest of the year, let him walk in free A's and C after the season, and that could open a spot up for one of the prospects. And they have kind of reduced his playing time a little bit. So I think, if anything, you probably see less of Frazier over the course of the season, but I don't see him going anywhere. Brandon Stoneberg is looking way into the future with this question. Is Colton Kowser a first ballot Hall of Famer, or do the writers screw him and it takes two or three ballots for him to get in? I would suspect that if Kowser has a Hall of Fame case down the line a couple of decades from now, that it will be largely driven by advanced stats, whatever those look like at this point in time. And there will be a lot of back and forth among the writers about whether or not those stats hold up and if he's a Hall of Famer. Um, and then there will probably, of course, be some complaining that the Orioles were cheap because they went under slot when they took him and that he came from a small school. So you have the small school bias factoring in. But after all of that, Kowser will eventually clear it and get in on his second or third ballot. Um, in all seriousness, big congratulations to Kowser for making the major leagues and doing it, I think, in a way that was not obvious. I, I said at the beginning of the year that I didn't think we would see Kowser until September because if the Orioles were contending, their outfield would be a big part of that, and you would have to really wonder, is he an upgrade? You know, Is bringing him up actually making your roster better? And the first part of that equation has largely been true. The Orioles are contending, and I think that their starting three of Hayes, Mullins, and Santander have been big parts of that. And then you add in Aaron Hicks, who has been useful since coming over in a part-time role. Ryan O'Hearn even factors into that situation a little bit because he occasionally plays the outfield himself and then can play first base or DH, so you have Santander in right field. But So the, all of that has been working for the Orioles, but the way that Kowser hit at Norfolk and the way he produced made the argument itself. I think he forced the Orioles' hand, and a big credit to him for doing that. And I think he's going to get regular opportunities going forward to show what he can do and probably be on track for a starting job, if not by the end of this season, then certainly by the beginning of next year. So a ton of credit to him for going to Norfolk, producing the way he did, and making the case to get to the major leagues. And it also shows that I think going forward, if the Orioles feel like they can find at bats for someone and that player is producing in AAA, they're going to bring him up. So that bodes well for someone like Heston Kerstad. If Kerstad continues to produce at Norfolk, and the opportunities are there for him late in the season to get at bats, maybe be part of that pennant chase, Orioles probably will bring him up. So good for Kowser, and I think that it gives us some idea going forward of how the Orioles are going to handle some of their prospects. Speaking of Kowser, we have a question here from David Adams. Now that Kowser is called up, can you review the top 10 picks of the 2021 draft, where they are now, and can you redraft them based on their ability slash potential? This is a fun exercise, and I think we start basically by looking at the top 10 of that draft and talking about where the players are now. The Pirates had the first overall pick that year. 
They chose Henry Davis, a catcher out of Louisville. Davis made his major league debut earlier this season, just a few weeks ahead of Calder and arriving to the majors. Zach Leiter went second to the Rangers. Leiter, as you will recall, highly talented right-hander out of Vanderbilt. He is in his second season at AA Frisco right now and really has struggled since joining the uh, professional ranks. 5-5-3 ERA over the past two seasons, 158 innings pits. He has spanned 194 batters but has walked 99 in that span. The Rangers probably a little too aggressive with Leiter from the jump. I think there's still time for him to turn things around, but so far not off to the best start. Jackson Job, a right-handed pitcher out of Heritage Hall School in Oklahoma, went third to the Tigers. Job right now is actually, I believe, working his way back from an injury. He had a season, 61 innings last year at Low A Lakeland, and right now I think is rehabbing from an injury that kept him out earlier this season. Marcelo Meyer, fourth overall to the Red Sox. Uh, Meyer not off to the best start at AA Portland, but still just 20 years old, has a ton of potential. Kowser, fifth to the Orioles. You have Jordan Lawler, who's currently posting an OPS of over 800 at AA Amarillo. Sixth to the Diamondbacks, Lawler was chosen out of high school. Frank Mazzucato was chosen seventh by the Royals in a pick that surprised some people at the time. High school left-hander from Hart, from East Catholic High School in Manchester, Connecticut. So far this season, Mazzucato has a 3.62 ERA and 59 two-thirds innings pitched between low A Columbia and high A Quad Cities. Benny Montgomery, an outfielder, went eighth overall to the Rockies out of Redland High School in Lewisbury, Pennsylvania. Montgomery currently in high A for the Rockies at Spokane where he is batting 271 with a 737 OPS and five homers in 61 games. Then at ninth overall, you had Sam Bachman, a pitcher out of Miami University of Ohio. He went to the Angels. He is one of three players inside the top 10 to have made his major league debut, joining Davis and Kowser. Kumar Rocker was drafted 10th by the Mets. They could not agree to terms, though, after the Mets drafted him, so Rocker ultimately re-entered the draft the following year and was chosen by the Rangers. He's currently at high A Hickory in their system. So if you want to go with the players that actually did agree to terms with their teams in 2021, the 10th pick would then become Brady House, who went number 11 to the Nationals. House had his first season cut short by injury. This year he has been healthier and has produced between low A Fredericksburg and high A Wilmington, hitting 304 with an 889 OPS and nine homers over 50 games between those two teams. Now, as for redrafting, uh, I still kind of early, so this would be probably a more precise analysis two or three years from now, but based off the returns so far, I don't see the number one pick changing. I think that that is still Henry Davis. I think second overall, the Rangers go with Jordan Lawler. I, I remember a lot of people kind of thought that might be the pick at the time. There was some speculation of that because Lawler being a local guy from Dallas, but I think the Rangers saw the opportunity to get a right-hander and lighter who they thought they could develop quickly. They chose him. That has not really gone according to plan so far. So I think they go with Lawler. And then at third overall, I do think that Meyer goes to the Tigers. So that leaves the fourth pick. I'm going to say that uh, the Red Sox probably go with Kowser, which leaves the fifth overall pick to the Orioles. And that's probably Brady House. I think that House goes to the Orioles in that scenario. Six overall, you have the Diamondbacks. They nab Montgomery. 
I think the Royals stick with Mazzucato as their pick at number seven. And then at eighth overall, I'll still say that it's Benny Montgomery to the Rockies. Sam Bachman, ninth to the Angels. And then at tenth overall, you have Jack Leiter to the Mets. That feels like the kind of move that the Mets would have made at that point in time. Of course, though, you could really make a case for these players to be rearranged in any order. Uh, it may turn out that one of Lawler or Meyer should have been the first pick. We're not going to know for a few years just because of where these guys are kind of are in their development paths. Some of them are playing really well but are young. Some guys have struggled more than we've expected. And then you have Bachman, Calder, and Davis already in the major leagues. So a few years from now, I think we'll be able to have a more precise analysis. But it's interesting to look at this draft because so far, the highest war out of the first round has actually been Matt McClain, who the Reds nabbed at number 17 out of UCLA. Maybe that bodes well for the Orioles, who have the 17th pick in this year's draft. We'll have to see, but so far, McClain has produced as a rookie for the Reds. He might have the case a few years from now from entering the top 10. Again, that's why these things, generally, you want to give them a few years before you look back, but it's still fun just two years out to look at this draft and see how these players have produced since entering the professional ranks. David actually has the last couple of questions in this episode of the Mailbag, so... We'll start with this one. Does Adley hitting the home run derby wake up his power or put him in a funk afterwards? Also, how many home runs does he hit afterwards? With the home run derby, there's been this general idea over the years that sometimes players will get into a rut afterwards, um, at least power-wise, because they may tweak their swing to try to hit more home runs in the home run derby, specifically may go with a little bit more of an uppercut than they normally have in games. I don't know that I see Adley doing that a whole lot. So I think things are going to stay about the same for him afterwards. And then as for how many home runs he hits following the All-Star break, I think 10 is a reasonable number. He's got 11 so far through 84 games. If he, you know, he may add to that total here as the last couple of games before the All-Star break. But I think 10 home runs would be a reasonable pace for him because he's coming off a pretty bad June at the plate, but is off to a solid start in July. So I think he is going to have at least another hot streak or two before this season ends, and we'll see the power come out then. So I'm going to predict 10 home runs, which would get him over 20 for the year, and that would be a pretty solid sophomore season from him, and I think a realistic number given his power output so far in 2023. We'll wrap up with another question from David, who wants to a preview of the Home Run Derby, the All-Star Game, and the Orioles series next weekend against the Miami Marlins at home. I'll start with the home run derby. We have a field of eight this year. Bracket is Luis Robert as the number one seed going up against Adley Rutzman, the eighth seed. Pete Alonso goes is the number two seed, and he'll match up against the number seven seed and Julio Rodriguez. Mookie Betts, the number three seed, goes against the sixth seed, Vladimir Guerrero Jr. Number four, Adolis Garcia versus, goes against the fifth seed, Randy Arozarena. The best matchup in that group is Alonzo and multi-time champion versus Rodriguez, who's going to put on a good show at T-Mobile Park, his home ballpark in Seattle. Um, that's going to be exciting to watch. And then I could see a Rosarina. I feel like if there's a sleeper who's going to go in and put up a bigger night than anybody's expecting, I would predict Rosarina. I don't really have any underlying theories for that. It's just a hunch right now. So I could see him having a good night, but that... Matchup of Alonzo versus Rodriguez is is must-see TV in my mind. And then, of course, I'm going to be watching and rooting for Adley Rutschman, though he has 
really tough competition in Luis Robert Jr., the White Sox center fielder. As for the All-Star game, we do not have the probable starters, at least as of Saturday morning when I'm recording this, but we do know that Austin Hayes is now going to be an All-Star starter. It was announced on Friday that he and Adolis Garcia were going to be joining the American League starting lineup to take the places of Aaron Judge and Mike Trout, who were named All-Stars but will not play in the game because of injuries. Really happy for Hayes and happy for all of the Orioles who are making it this year. He's joined by Adley Rutzman, Yannier Cano, and Felix Bautista. One thing I think that we can agree on is that the optimal outcome, if you are an Orioles fan, is an American League victory closed out by Felix Bautista with Adley Rutschman behind the plate. I think that would be a phenomenal showcase for them and for everything that is going well for the Orioles right now. I also really want to see Yannier Cano get into this game and do the strikeout stare. I just want some poor, unsuspecting National League hitter to get that stare down from Cano after he gets them to chase a 95-mile-an-hour sinker out of the strike zone. As for the upcoming series against the Marlins, which will take place next weekend, we don't have the probable starters yet, but one thing we do know is that the Orioles will not be seeing Yuri Perez after the Marlins opted him to double-A Pensacola. To give some context around Perez, 20-year-old right-hander really lived up to the hype after being promoted to the major leagues. Through 11 starts, he had 53 in the third innings pitched, 61 strikeouts against his 17 walks with a 2-3-6 ERA. The move was planned by the Marlins, though, reportedly because they want to manage his innings total. Between the major leagues and the minor leagues this year, Perez has already thrown 84 and a third innings pitch. That includes his 53 and a third in the majors, as well as 31 innings that he logged for AA Pensacola earlier this year. The Marlins feel like they have the pitching depth to send Perez back down to the minor leagues and manage his innings more carefully in a less competitive environment, bring him back up later this summer, and have him around for the playoffs. Right now, the Marlins are sitting in pretty good shape in the playoff race. They are 51-39 and as of when I'm recording this, good for second place in the National League East behind the dominant Atlanta Braves. And they are second in the wild card, just back of the Los Angeles Dodgers, who are first in that race. Now, the Marlins have kind of been positioning themselves to be more competitive for a while. It hasn't worked out yet, but what has clicked for them this year is a little bit better lineup, and a big part of that has been Luis Arise, who came over from the Minnesota Twins in the Pablo Lopez trade. After winning the American League batting title last year with a 316 clip, Arise is well on his way to winning his second straight batting title, albeit in a different league. And I think if you're an Orioles fan, a big incentive to go out to the Marlins series next weekend is to see a guy who has a legitimate pace for a 400 batting average, possibly. Maybe he's the first person since Ted Williams in 1941 to do so, currently hitting 386. It's going to be a little bit of a climb for him to get to 400, but nonetheless, it's going to be exciting to see if he can do that this season. Looking at the Marlins team totals with the rise leading charts, they are currently second in the National League with a 264 batting average. Across the board, though, Kind of an interesting story with the Marlins, where they're second in batting average. They're just below the league average in on-base percentage at 323. Currently, the average in the National League is 324. They have the fourth lowest home run total, though. So they're winning without a lot of power. 83 home runs ranks ahead of only the Pirates, Rockies, and Nationals, who have 80 home runs. That's the totals for the Pirates and the Rockies. And then 72 home runs from the Nationals. On the pitching side of things, the Marlins having a very good season. They are currently tops in the National League 
with 850 strikeouts. Their walk total this season ranks fairly low, 275. Only the Braves, Cubs, Dodgers, Phillies, and Giants have walked fewer pitcher, fewer batters as a pitching staff than the Marlins have this year. In terms of ERA, the Marlins right now rank 6th in the National League, behind only the Phillies, Cubs, Giants, Padres, and Braves. So, good pitching staff. The Marlins have the ability as a lineup to hit for contact, which offsets the fact that they don't hit for a ton of power. So, the Orioles... I think the pitching staff is going to be tough for them, especially if they do draw Jesus Lazardo, who has finally put together the potential that we've long known that he has had and is having a good year out of the major leagues. It could be a tough weekend for the lineup, but I think the pitching staff will match up quite well against the Marlins. And with that, that's going to do it for this Major League Mailbag. A couple of things I'm looking forward to this weekend, seeing the Orioles hopefully close out the pre-All-Star break slate with a series win at Minnesota. They got the victory on Friday night. Looking forward to seeing what they do over Saturday and Sunday. We will have our draft coverage for you early next week. And I would also recommend that uh, you go check out friend of the show, Connor Newcomb's uh, recent episode where he interviewed Joe Doyle. I'm going to be listening listening that myself today. Certainly looking forward to hearing Joe Doyle's insight over on Connor's show. And then if you are a member of our Patreon community, Nick and I will have you covered over the weekend with the dailies. And if you haven't become a member of our Patreon community just yet, please consider doing so. You can sign up for as little as $3 a month, have access to our very active WhatsApp chat where a lot of our questions come from the mailbag each week. And then of course, the five and $10 levels, you will have access to exclusive bonus daily coverage of the minor leagues. Thank you again, as always, for the excellent questions. Really enjoyed doing this week's mailbag, and thank you for listening. That'll do it for this week's episode of On The Verge. Be sure to check out our Patreon page where you can help show your support for the show and get bonus content, including monthly top 50 updates to our prospect list and daily game recaps during the season, and much, much more. Jessica. This is the happiest day of my life. Right up there with the day I bought my RV and insured it with Progressive. Man, I love that thing. (laughs) There are a million fish in the sea, which I'm reminded of every time I bring my RV to the lake, but I vow to love and cherish you just as much as I cherish campsites with full electric and water hookups. (laughs) I'm so sorry. Protect your beloved with an RV policy from Progressive. Take as little as four minutes to see what you could save at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.